Welcome to Books and Nachos. A podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza media podcast about all things in print. I am your host, Stuart in L.A. We've reached the year 2061 the third leg in a millennia-long odyssey conceived on the page by Arthur C. Clarke. And although we're going to jump much further into the future this time than we did with that second book, Clarke publishes Odyssey 3 a mere five years after 2010 hit book stands, or three years after the movie. When you compare that to the 16-year gap between 2001 and 2010, I dare say this project feels a tad bit premature. Perhaps the word to use is even rushed, 2061 doesn't even sound like a significant year. In truth, from what I can gather, Arthur C. Clarke never intended this book to be part of his trilogy. He saw Odyssey as a trilogy. I think the planned third book was going to be set in 3001, and he wasn't going to write about it until at least the mid-1990s, after we had some more data about Jupiter that had been collected by Galileo, the next space probe to be launched. But all of that changed January 28th, 1986. The Challenger space shuttle blows up shortly after takeoff. It was the Challenger that was going to be Galileo's ride to the starting line of its mission. With that, Clark recognized there was going to be a delay. It was going to take additional time to have a replacement shuttle to get that probe on its way. And in the meantime, I think he really wanted to pin a response to the Challenger tragedy. He saw it as an opportunity to maybe give a voice and words of encouragement to a space program that had been badly rocked uh, by setbacks. Uh, That's probably why 2061 Odyssey 3 doesn't take as big an evolutionary step as the first two novels do. To me, this is an interlude. It has a plot that hinges on an accident in space, and it's going to bring characters from the previous novels together in this context, but we're not going to see the kinds of grandiosity uh, that we did in 2001-2010. So yes, it has been 60 years since Dave Bowman shut down HAL and left the Discovery spaceship to disappear inside that giant orbiting monolith. 51 years have passed since Jupiter transformed into Lucifer, a second sun seemingly constructed by the aliens to provide an ideal environment to grow life on second moon Europa. I was wondering how long it was going to take for mankind to disobey a direct order that was dictated by the ghost of Dave Bowman, transmitted by HAL 9000 before the discovery blew up in the Jupiter blast. The language was very clear. Quote, All these worlds are yours, except Europa. Attempt no landings there. End quote. Hard to be confused by that. But, you know, 
given human nature, frankly, I'm surprised we didn't break the rule sooner. Like, as fast as we could build a new spaceship and get there, I would think we would have done it. But no, for 50 years, we play ball. Humans, of course, are going to try to study Europa from afar, but it's very hard to do because Lucifer has transformed the ecosystem. If you remember, the surface of the moon was all ice. And now that there's a new sun beating down on it, that ice has melted. It's formed an ocean, which has begat thick clouds that make seeing what's going on, the surface, it's hard to do. Scientists have injected the occasional probe into the atmosphere, having some flyby fact-finding missions. They've only learned two important geological developments. One, there's a two-kilometer-long rectangle covered in snow on the dark side of the moon that's presumed to be the Big Brother monolith that used to be orbiting around Jupiter. And two, there is now a massive glittering mountain the size of Everest jutting out of the water. That wasn't there two years before. That structure, they call it Mount Zeus, is really what's going to tempt us to disobey the request to stay away. We tested the boundaries for decades, but in the year 2061, the spaceship galaxy is going to get hijacked and it is going to land on the surface of Europa. So this is the story of the rescue attempt that was launched to save the crew that's on the forbidden alien world. Once again, Clark is going to have three different narrators provide a comprehensive version of this story. The primary viewpoint is once again going to be that of Dr. Haywood Floyd. Yes, he's still alive. I was surprised too. He's a very spry 103 years old, in fact. Most of his fellow Leonov crew members are dead. They returned to Earth in 2015. Dr. Chandra died in transit in hypersleep. It's presumed that he just couldn't live without Hal. And in that time, for various reasons, Kurnow, many of the Russians, old age, what have you, has taken them out. What has kept Floyd alive is actually the serendipity of an accident. He was at a celebration in his honor. He got a little too drunk. He took a nasty spill, and it required him to heal in a space hospital. And it was just like what the Children of the Moon Base said back in the novel 2001. Earth is a nasty place. You skin your knees, you break your bones. You don't want to be there. You remove our gravitational pull from the mix, and you live a much longer life. Floyd is 103 because he lives in outer space now. And so he's just not daunted by our gravitational pull. The doctors tell him he actually has the health and the body of a 65-year-old, which is about actually the age Arthur C. Clarke is writing this novel. So again, I really see that there's a parallel there. I think Clarke sees himself in the Floyd character. He's a stand-in, and it's why so much of the book is devoted to the way Floyd sees Earth from his distant window of his space home. And so I'd like to point out, you know, many of the things that Floyd observes that Clark is predicting, basically, have come true. There's gay marriage. South Africa has ended apartheid. And we've entered an age of transparency where the public has a lot of access to classified government secrets that we can now see what spy satellites used to only be able to see. We know the location of the last 50 nukes. Even the monolith, the thing that Floyd worked so hard to keep out of the hands of the Russians, is now sitting outside the UN headquarters as a piece of public art. It's kind of Edward Snowden's utopia here. I mean, there are no more secrets. There are no more governments, per se. There's actually a planetary president, and he's much more powerful than any leader of a country. 
Now, because Floyd is such a legendary figure in the space program, he's been invited to join a bunch of movie stars and military figures and scientists and celebrities. They're all going to take a ride in the spaceship called the Universe as it rendezvous with Halley's Comet. That's right. It's been 75 years. Halley's Comet swings by every 75 years in our solar system, which would mean that the next time it's in town is 2061. And this time we don't just watch idly from the Earth end of a telescope. We can actually land on the sucker. We can walk around in it. It's it's payback for a really dismal 1986 where all the stargazers and wannabe astronomers try to join the Halley's Comet hype by pointing their telescopes up there to see something magnanimous, something we've been told was once in a lifetime, and it ended up looking like a smudge. You know, this book was written a year after the Halley's Comet fiasco, I'll call it, but a year after it passed by Earth and ended up not being as visible or as grandiose as we might have hoped. And I think that Clark is devoting a lot of time here in this novel to give us details of what we missed. In truth, I think he spends too much time on this. I mean, it is magnificent. He has a wonderful way with scientific language. And as we see Floyd puttering around on the surface and the geysers and, and all the things, it's fantastical to think about. But it's also a 100 pages of this 276-page story. And since I saw the plot primarily being about a rescue mission, I mean, the only thing that's important here is that this universe spaceship is the nearest vehicle to Europa when the galaxy crashes. So they're going to be asked to reroute their mission. They must leave Halley's Comet and find a way to rescue the survivors as fast as they can. Uh, Floyd, you know, he's an expert in this kind of thing. He actually works with the captain, comes up with a way to harness vapor emissions from Halley's Comet. It's actually going to give them a boost. It looked like that they weren't going to get there for months. But because he figures out a way to use Halley's Comet to their advantage, they're going to get there in a matter of weeks. And time is critical because they don't know how much longer the galaxy crew is going to be able to survive in this alien world. Keep in mind, we're not supposed to be there. There's probably some punishment coming from the monolith or from the indigenous life. But they only have a limited amount of supplies, and if the ship sinks, they're in trouble. So in between these chapters where Floyd and the captain of the universe are figuring out how to get there, we have the point of view of two other narrators on the galaxy ship. One of which, in an amazing bit of coincidence, is the grandson of Haywood Floyd. Yes, Remember little Chris that he left behind in 2010 to go rendezvous with Discovery? Well, he grew up never knowing Haywood Floyd, even when he came back, didn't get to know his father, raised a son of his own, named him Chris, and now that Chris is an Interpol cop. They call it Astropol, but he is a police officer on this galaxy ship. He was positioned there because the Earth community had some inkling that there was going to be something bad to go down on this ship. It was meant to explore all the moons of Lucifer, collect some geological data. Most of its crew are scientists. They did not know that it was going to be hijacked and taken to Europa, but they had some transmissions that led them to believe that it was worth putting a cop on this mission. And so he is there trying to figure out who amongst the crew might be part of the mutiny. All that they know for sure is that one stewardess got a gun 
came up on the captain and forced him to land. And through a bunch of technical maneuvers, too complicated to explain, they ended up in the water, floating for now, but adrift at sea. The second-in-command took the gun, killed the stewardess. Now she won't be able to answer any of their questions. It's for Chris Floyd to interrogate all the crew members and figure out who amongst them might have been in on it. Why anyone would have wanted to bring them to the surface of this dangerous, hostile planet. And it is indeed hostile. They throw the body of the traitor out the window, give her a burial at sea, and almost instantly, a shark with a giant beak leaps out and eats her. And then dies because, well, there's nothing like human life on this planet. We are an infection, really, to this ecosystem. So we're poison to the natural life. And this sea is swimming with all kinds of fish. Eventually, the galaxy beaches on dry land. It's a rocky quarry. Uh, There's lots of volcanic activity on this planet. So there's constant tremors. I keep waiting for something major to happen, Uh, more animals to attack, or certainly some kind of repercussion for breaking the rule. Where's the monolith? Where's the retribution for not staying away? The surprise of 2061 is that there is none, that by and large, the monolith stays silent throughout this story. The only real source of suspense, of tension, involves our third narrator, sort of the guilty party, if you were. There is a geologist who was stationed on board the galaxy who, well, he wasn't exactly in on the mutiny, but he got the ball rolling. His name is Rolf Vandenberg, and he came up with a theory that the giant mountain, Mount Zeus, was actually a big diamond. And because he's South African and communicated his findings to people back home, this became a hot-button political issue. We learn a little bit about futuristic South Africa, that after apartheid ended, their ability to mine, their whole economy kind of went under. They're looking for a new source of revenue. They're looking for new diamonds. So learning about what Zeus might be composed of they, it was worth their while to have this ship crash so that this geologist could prove for sure whether this was true. Rolf didn't know it was coming, but once he is on the surface, he knows that the only thing that's important at this point, whether he lives or dies, he needs to know for sure and radio back home whether or not Mount Zeus is a big diamond or not. And again, it's a real surprise to me that the monolith does not get involved in this. I mean, we have greedy people that want to not only land on Europa, but steal it of its geological splendors. Oh, they are definitely paying for that, right? That space baby is going to come back and blow their heads up. Something, right? No, no, really doesn't go like that. I mean, maybe... It has some influence on what happens next because what we see is that Rolf and Chris Floyd get into a space pod, that the galaxy is marooned, it's wrecked, it cannot fly, but it still has a pod connected to it that can fly. They fly off to inspect the mountain and indeed prove that it is what Rolf thought it to be. His code word is Lucy for Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, the Beatles song. He radios back that Lucy is here, Lucy is here. And then the mountain collapses. It actually sinks 
below the ocean surface. So there's definitely, if they had hoped to do anything with mining it or, or, or landing again with drills, that's an impossibility. We know this ocean is filled with predators. We couldn't begin to take on the giant diamond is lost. But strangely, that's not even the punishment. I, I would have thought that you would have wanted to give an unhappy end for the greedy South Africans. But in fact, what is determined by Rolf is that that diamond wasn't formed here on the Europa. It couldn't have been. I mean, Europa was icy. You need heat to intense heat to create a diamond. So it's actually determined that the Mountain Zeus was shot out of Jupiter when it imploded, that it landed on Europa, and that it must be one bit of a lot of diamonds that are now floating around. So he's telling the South Africans, check the asteroid belts, check all of the debris, or check other moons of Jupiter, and you'll probably find a substantial quantity of diamonds. So hooray, there are horrible efforts to maroon people on a forbidden planet and put their lives at stake are rewarded. Monolith, where are you? I mean, we do get a little bit of it. Uh, Floyd is having a dream where he thinks it appears to him in his room. And at the same time, Chris Floyd, the grandson, has Rolf fly the pod by that rectangle, the one that they thought was the giant monolith. And he has a vision of his grandfather coming and saying goodbye to him. So it appears that there's some kind of cosmic influence that is linking these two family members together in the final moments of the book. But then, I don't know, the universe does get there. It does rescue everyone. Floyd meets his grandson in the flesh, and they go off together. Almost nothing consequential seems to have transpired in 2061. It's a very strange novel. I mentioned having problems with the flow of 2010 and how it was kind of disjointed, hard to follow at times. That's triply true here. I mean, I think it's part of Clark's charm as an author is that he has this need for plausibility in a way that I rarely find in science fiction. I mean, typically I wouldn't have thought, oh, there's a ship nearby. It can fly there. No problem. I wouldn't have thought about what it would take for them to have the fuel to get there. And, you know, there's all this concern about we need to get clean. There's so much dirt on our ship. We might overheat if we don't get the dirt off. I mean, that's just not a conflict I typically see in any science fiction movie or book. So I think that's great. I think that it gives 2061 an aura that's unique. But the narrative flow really pays the price for these kinds of elaborate, deep dives into scientific plausibility. It's highly uneven and with a anticlimax that, yeah, again, I use the word interlude. 2061 doesn't feel like the next big step. You know, first time we saw Dave transformed into a space child. Last time we saw Jupiter turn into a sun. Nothing like that really happens here, except maybe in the last couple pages. We get a strange sort of coda in which after everyone has left the planet, everyone's saved, by the way, no one died except the one terrorist who tried to take the cockpit with a gun and was thrown out to sea. Everyone else makes it off perfectly fine. We have a verbal exchange between three characters that end up being Dr. Haywood Floyd, HAL 9000, 
and Dave Bobin. They're ghosts, they're residues, whatever the monolith does to you after you enter it, they've gotten Floyd. That appears to have been the gamble uh, that they were having by allowing this galaxy to crash on Europa. Dave and Hal were actually hoping that it would be their opportunity to, I don't know, kidnap, manipulate, photocopy. It kind of feels like a Xerox. Floyd is alive and well and playing with his grandfather and will live a couple more years, we're told. But some part of him, some aspect of him, remains on Europa to continue the work. I can't tell you what's happening because... That's not described. It is all done in dialogue. They don't even identify who's saying what. You can kind of figure it out. I'll read you a little passage here. This is Dave talking. We three must be the administrators of the unforeseen, as well as the guardians of this world. Already you've met the amphibians, meaning those sharks with the beaks. You have still to encounter the silicon-armored tappers of the lava streams and the floaters who are harvesting the sea. Our task is to help them find their full potential, perhaps here, perhaps elsewhere. And what of mankind? I assume that's Floyd talking. And he responds, there have been times when I've been tempted to meddle in human affairs, but the warning that was given to mankind applies also to me. We have not obeyed it very well. I think that's Floyd. Perhaps it's Hal. Hard to say. But well enough. Meanwhile, there is much to do before Europa's brief summer ends and the long winter comes again. So what we learn is basically Dave and Hal didn't die when Discovery was destroyed. They live on here in Europa in some ghostly state. Hal, with his computer mind, has actually started to map out the inner workings of the monolith. They see it very much as a machine that can be controlled, that they hope to use it to, in fact, be the gods of this world. And they need Floyd. They think he has knowledge that they do not possess that can help them do what needs to be done, as mentioned, before darkness. And the last chapter in the novel is a jump ahead, I guess a preview to what we're getting next week, because we're in the year 3001, and Lucifer, the second son, goes black. I take that to mean the curtain is about to rise on whatever Dave, Hal, and Floyd have been cooking up on Europa. I don't know what it's going to look like. We know Earth life. We survived without Lucifer. I'm sure everyone on Earth is going to be okay. But what that means for Europa and whether it will necessitate those creatures leaving and going somewhere else... Well, that's the one thing I'm really excited about and anxious to find out next week when I get to 3001, The Final Odyssey. But as far as my opinions about this one, I feel like I recommend it only if next week is a worthy conclusion. It's teasing things that I want to know here in the end. It had moments with characters that I admire. But overall, there's sort of a inconsequential quality. Again, it was written in haste. It was written as a response to tragedies. And I feel like it's far from Arthur C. Clarke's best writing. But if next week is worthwhile, it might be a worthy preview. I think that it might ultimately have been best just being a segment of that novel. In the same way that Moonwatcher and the Cavemen were a segment of 2001's novel, and that 
we could just start there in 2061 and jump ahead in the same way that Clark did it in the first novel from Cavemen to Space Times. But I still enjoyed myself. I'm still enjoying this odyssey. I hope you stay with me. Next week, we reach 3001, the final odyssey. And all our questions will presumably be answered then. I hope you're enjoying this. I hope that you stay with us as we conclude next week on Books and Nachos. Keep reading. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.